I'm the doctor. So you're the famous Sam. You're listening to Pieces of Eight, the Doctor Who podcast that you can take as read. We're back to look at those sections of the Doctor Who universe that feature the incarnation of the Time Lord, as played by Paul McGann. I'm Rebecca Chapman. And I'm Kenny Smith, and you join us as we resume our quest to feature the Eighth Doctor's exploits. And in particular this season, it's all about the books. About the books. No audios. No, maybe not. And moving swiftly on... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're the, although I'm going to have that stuck in my head all day now I, I'm terrible Sorry. <laughs> we're featuring the EDA novels which were published by BBC Books in the 1990s and today we're putting book 15 The Scarlet Empress by Paul Mars into focus did you know that The Scarlet Empress is the most read of all the EDAs <laughs> get it? red, scarlet, red, colour you know, boom boom I'm going to pretend you didn't say that Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I'm very, very sorry. No, 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 no. It's okay. I'm expecting my partner to start coming out with very bad dad jokes soon enough, don't worry. Yeah, well, he's, only got, he's got six months to prepare. So, or just over six. Yeah, just about six months to prepare. So, yeah. Uh, five months, as this says. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Oh. Terrible. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, before we go any further, would you mind telling us what the back cover blurb has to tell us about the Scarlet Empress? which was published on the 7th of September, 1998. Of course I can. Ahem, ahem. First mode, activate. <laughs> Arriving on the almost impossibly ancient planet of Hispero, a world where magic and danger walk hand in hand, the Doctor and Sam are caught up in a bizarre struggle for survival. Hispero has been ruled for thousands of years by the Scarlet Empresses, creatures of dangerous powers, Powers that a member of the Doctor's own race is keen to possess herself. The eccentric time traveller and philanderer known only as Iris Wildtime. As the real reasons for Iris's obsession become clear, the Doctor and Sam must embark on a perilous journey across deserts, mountains, forests and oceans. Both friends and foes are found amongst spirits, jinns, alligator men and golden bears. But in a land where the magic is possible, is anything really as it seems? Kenny, I have to say, this seems like a book that's larger than life. <laughs> that's an understatement. It's absolutely amazing. It is, and with no disrespect to the other EDA authors, this one was different because the characters, the writing style, everything about it is just so different. And you can feel the author's voice and presence there throughout. This is... The introduction to Iris Wildtime in full. We met her briefly in a short trip, um, one of the early BBC short trip stories uh, called Old Flames, where she met the Doctor and Sarah Jean. But she's just, initially we, we think she's a Time Lord, but later discover out she's one of the clockworks. But she has a TARDIS that's like a bus, and it's the same size, in fact, it'd be smaller inside than on, out, on the out. And she's just incredibly funny. She's got she's got memories of the doctor's adventures or so we think and she, she talks about effectively like the events of the five doctors but changes all the monsters and the villain behind it and so like the good like daleks and cybermen become rubbish monsters uh, from the tv show and it's really really funny and very much there's a lot of magical realism in here as well 
just the characters that they're just so vivid and they take on their own personalities. You can feel them, you know, just jumping out the page. You can almost imagine it as a picture book. They're just so vivid. It's just it's wonderful. And there's a thing on Twitter at the moment, Mid Journey. And if you go in there and have a look, you'll find some amazing pictures from the Scarlet Empress, which are well worth a look. And yeah, it's a fabulous book. Iris is great. And also there's a brief mention of this story, very sort of obscurely, in Paul's first script for them, The Stones of Venice. And it's a reference to the Empress herself. So here's the clip. The Duke Orsino's much-prized reserved collection of unattributed paintings. I had them hung so he could take one last look. They're marvellous. Unattributed, you say? I like this one with all the volcanoes and the foxes running around in their smart little outfits. And this one of the lady in the great big glass jar. Mm, That is from the Duke's grandfather's collection. It's criminal, the idea that all of these things will be destroyed. I have given up hope now. And there we go. A throwaway reference to the... The Empress and the, or the woman inside the bell jar. So there you go. Recommended. Very interesting. I think, I think you'd like this one. It's very much up your street. I was going to say, I know I say that all of them sound really good and that I, I really want to read all of them, but this one sounds like one that I really, really, really should read. <laughs> yeah, uh, you really, 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 really want to say, because it, uh, no, no, that's something <laughs> else entirely. I didn't realise that Paul McGann had ever met the Spice Girls. <laughs> well, I'm sure he knows now because they're both Scousers. You know, like Liverpool Club. Terrible. Do you know ever? Oh, well, actually, the amount of Scottish people we have on this podcast, you might as well know them all. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, just not um, Gatwa, Tennant, and Capaldi. We can but hope one day because we, we all know that they really want to be my friend. So, yeah. <laughs> Guys, you know where I am. You know Everyone. where my Twitter handle is. Everyone wants to be your friend, Penny. <laughs> oh, that's very kind. I think we should now begin our look at the Scarlet Empress, starting with Steve Cole, the range editor of the BBC Books at the time, who really, really should have a desk chair here with us. Yeah, it would definitely be appropriate, but um, only for a couple of minutes every day. But yeah, we still like to hear from Steve. Maybe we could just get him a cushion. Yeah, you can have a cushion and a seat on the floor. There you go, Steve. <laughs> Hi, I'm Steve Cole. I was range editor for BBC Books' Doctor Who list back in the late 90s. Next on our list, we have The Scarlet Empress, which I think it's fair to say is one of the books where the author's unique voice absolutely shone through from the first page. And I'd imagine that after you started working with Paul on Old Flames in the first volume of Short Trips, that he was a shooty in for doing a full novel. Absolutely, yeah. I mean. I did really love Old Flames. I just wasn't quite sure that we could maintain its intensity throughout, of the core idea, throughout an entire novel. I met Paul and we just got on straight away and we had such a laugh talking. Um, that yes, it's really sort of just sent away and come up with something else, uh, which of course, you know, Paul hemorrhages incredible ideas um, in, a, in, a, in a lovely way. That sounds a bit unpleasant. Um, it's very, he throws them out. In, uh, in directions and it's just a, a joy to, to see him work and I think with Scarlet Empress he really gave full reign to uh, his imagination and told this really enchanting story it was I remember him saying it was a Doctor Who take on the Arabian Nights and obviously a lot of you know, magic realism in there which was kind of one of his trademarks 
and yeah, what what fun it was. Um, and it was, you know, it was just wonderfully easy to work with him. I remember he had a line or something saying, Sam had always loved pirates, blah, 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 blah. And then I think I said, oh, in one of the books, we said actually she didn't like pirates. And that word or complaint, the line changed to, Sam had never liked pirates. <laughs> and he just sort of like changed the whole paragraph accordingly to make it, uh, to make it fit in with her. So yeah, it was great. So yeah, I mean, what a, what a story it is. It's full of really memorable characters, full of a, a plot that just shines and fizzes from the page. And yeah, and even the cover was, uh, was something pretty special. We got Colin Howard to do a little bit of art to show the uh, impress in her jar. So many images in that book sort of stay with you forever. So yeah, it was. I was delighted when critical reaction to that one was as positive as my own editorial instincts were. It was a real, yeah, real treat, real joy working with Paul on on all the projects, but Scarlet Impress in particular was was a, was a real favourite. And of course, little did you realise the impact that Iris Wilding was going to have, and of course, a character who you later came to write for for Big Finish as well. Yes, what a, what a treat that was. Yeah, I think Iris had uh, you know, had her origins in one of Paul's other novels, and sort of was kind of pulled through into the Doctor Who universe, and. Yeah, I mean, enormous fun. I had, little did I realise just how <laughs> involved with Iris I would end up being, uh, going on to, uh, yes, you say, write for her a few times, um, sometimes with Paul, sometimes by myself, and being trusted to uh, write adventures for Iris. Always talked about, talked to Paul about them and what they'd be. Um, that was that was real joy, and of course, I'd be working with Katie Manny, of course. I think you know, we used to we used to discuss you know who could play the different incarnations of uh, iris and yeah when katie was a joy and really uh, really informed the writing of, uh, of some of those plays later on like the wormery for example so yes it was not only was it um, wonderful to have such a great novel by a brilliant novelist on our list but it was the start of a friendship which was has been yeah absolutely Lovely in my life. Thanks to Steve again, and he will be back next time. As ever, when we cover a novel, we've created some new readings from the book for you to hear. So here's a section from the start of the book, and it's read by me, apparently. Oh, I'd forgotten I'd recorded this, so that's nice. Yes, but it was a few weeks ago, so woohoo! <laughs> Maybe he had mellowed, but when he thought about Iris these days, he didn't feel quite so hostile. Once upon a time, she had seemed to him a meddlesome, foolish, prattling old woman, and he had told her so on numerous occasions. Their paths had continued to cross over the years, and some of the doctors of old had lost their patience with her. Yet now, only now, the doctor looked back at Iris with something approaching fondness. It had been a long time, so perhaps he had mellowed after all. Or maybe the intervening years had been so fraught he was able to see Iris for what she had always been. Harmless, funny, a dilettant and shameless philandra. All the way to the graveyard, the doctor refused to answer Sam's questions. He found that he was starting to relish the thought of seeing Iris again. He couldn't even remember what the last encounter had been. Unhappy, at any rate, he seemed to recall their parting under a cloud. He wished his memory wasn't so poor, and sometimes when he tried to reach back into previous lives, it was like recalling something told to him a dream or a book he'd once read, 
and it made him feel very young, dwarfed by the magnitude of his life. Sometimes it wasn't worth the mental effort trying to drag his waking thoughts to a point before Scarrow, London, San Francisco, Lungbear. Just let the past come to you when it will, he thought. That's the best way, because in the end it always will. Strange that it should come in the form of Irish wild time. His, the itinerant journal keeper and dogger of the doctor's footsteps. She had known all of his incarnations, known them all. His past would be more real to her than it was to him. She loved to reminisce. Perhaps that was why he was glad she was here on Hispro. I was in love with you, you fool, he remembered her yelling once. For years she had kept that tight little secret down, exploding once and yelling at him in a forest in the middle of the night. She knew it was all impossible, however. No matter how many outbursts and revelations she made, since that particular admission, the Doctor had been warier of her than ever before. Sometimes she overpowered him with her raffish brio. He came away from each of their intermittent encounters somewhat shaken. Here was the bus. Charming spot, Sam, he smiled. You bring me to the nicest places. The lights on the bus were blazing now. It looked almost cosy aboard. He remembered being on board that bus and felt a flash of what was almost nostalgia. Christmas dinner with Irish, Tegan and Turlow. One of their happier meetings. The doctor asked, You say there was no sign of an oldish woman? A bit dressed up? About so high? Sam shook her head. You know who this belongs to, don't you? He bit his lip and nodded. But the Irish I knew would never leave her bus unlocked like this. He sighed. Something dreadful must have happened. Iris had always been so ridiculously proud of her TARDIS. It had amused him, her pleasure and pride. He remembered the first time he had been allowed to come aboard, and that had happened only because she was so drunk she couldn't see herself home. He had carried her home through a forest, and when at last climbed aboard her bus, he burst out laughing. Her TARDIS was exactly the same size inside as out, and that was why she was reluctant to let him on board. We've built it up enough. It's time to hear from the man with the plan the creator of Iris Wildtime, Mr. Paul Mars. I'm Paul Mars, and I'm the author of um, Doctor Who, The Scarlet Empress, from back in 1998. It's quite a scary thought, isn't it, to think it was that long ago? I suppose. I mean, when you said it was 25 years since the beginning of that particular range, I suppose it is, but then I think that's an awful lot that's gone in, gone on in those last 25 years and a lot of books. And when I was thinking about talking about this particular book, I think I can't remember enough to fill a podcast. And I don't think I've got anything left to say about this book. It's been wow. so long since I thought about it. I'm sure we'll find something over the next few minutes. But we'll start off by and your beginning of your association with the Eighth Doctor. Do you remember he, where you were when you heard that Paul had been cast in the part? Um, I guess I was living in Edinburgh. I'd moved um, in 95 uh, to a, a flat share and I was finishing my uh, PhD on Angela Carter and living in the centre of the Ed of the city centre in a warehouse flat up a fire escape very high up and I was about to publish my first novel with um, Chateau and Windus uh, Marked for Life and so I'd stopped being a student for the first time in seven years and uh, I'd been at Lancaster where in the middle of, of all these degrees that I did <laughs> I did um, 
uh, creative writing degree, which is when I, I met and became friends with Paul Cornell, who that very year was publishing Revelation, the first um, new adventure that he did as part of that first batch. And at that point, it seemed that everybody I knew was writing Doctor Who books. I'd been at school with Mark Gatiss and hadn't seen him for years and years. And then he was doing a, a new adventure. And really, if, if my Nana had turned up and said she was writing a Doctor Who book, but I wasn't, I wouldn't have been at all surprised. But I'd kind of eschewed Doctor Who in those middle years while I was doing my PhD. It seemed that the novels had gone on in their own direction and I'd lost track, really. I dipped in here and there. And by... I guess, 96, I'd been in Edinburgh for a while, and there was this announcement about McGann, which seemed to kind of, it was one of those wonderful stepping in points for Doctor Who again, that it was going to, you know, refresh itself and, and, and be about somebody else and, and usher in a whole new feeling, which, which was important, and even, and even be a continuing TV show again, which is what we, you know, we really thought at the time, didn't we? Yeah. That he would come back and, and it would be a pilot, and there were, you know, nice magazines that, that there was this, there was a kind of I think Panini did one that talked about possible future episodes there was that wonderful rumor that they were going to remake Doctor Who classics kind of set them in America so you'd have you know towns of Wang Chiang in 19th century San Francisco and the gunfights and things which I still think would have been a wonderful 90s TV show um, so that was early night. I guess, I mean, what, when, was it February or something when we first knew? I think it was January, right at the start of January. Yeah, so that excitement. And I'm wondering what, what possibilities there were coming up with that. And we watched the possibilities fade <laughs> through that year. <laughs> the inevitable disappointment that comes with being a Doctor Who fan in any form. But, you know, it reignited all that nonsense. You know, it all came back the fannishness and I'd worked at Granada briefly the year before in 95 and, and, and worked with um, Russell on a soap opera that, that was his and been out for lunch and we kind of came out to each other as Doctor Who fans or rather didn't we kind of hid our fannishness slightly oh yes we used to be oh yes we, we know we've given up reading the NAs <laughs> and then the next thing was he was writing one which which you know it's funny it's 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 uh um, it makes you, there's a kind of, uh, you can drift away from it, but as soon as somebody mentions it again, or mentions being in the thick of Doctor Who again, it pulls you back. And that's always been true, going back to about the age of nine. Oh, I've given up reading Target books. And then the next thing, you're in WH Smith. It's like being an addict. So it was the same thing for me in the 90s. And as soon as McGann was mentioned, as soon as Russell was writing a Doctor Who book, as soon as they talked about the books going back to BBC books, and, and there was something about that and knowing that they were keeping the same format. And I remember getting the, the kind of writers, it wasn't a handbook, it wasn't a Bible, it was just a few pages photocopied from the original editor and, and getting, you know, writing in for those, mm -hmm. like I had done for the, the, the New Adventures things and never did anything about getting the BBC outlines and thinking, actually, maybe this time... Um, I really should because I was a, a published author by then, and um, some of the sting had gotten, you know, gone out of, um, you know, the feeling that you're writing into the void. Although I think Doctor Who books are always much more welcoming to people, and so many people got started off, at least in Virgin books. I mean, that, that really started a lot of people off, didn't it? BBC books didn't. They kind of got the old pros, <laughs> mostly. I think. I think because there was such a lot of work to do. 
that they um, had to get dependable people who could turn out the stuff. And because it was, you know, it was two eighty thousand word novels per month, wasn't it? And Most right. months of the year. and non-fiction. And poor Steve Cole, you know, did it all from one desk yeah. in the corner of BBC Worldwide or whatever it was, and the videos and the the cassettes, and, and it was just a massive job. So he was delighted, I know, when when he got people he could work with nicely and rely on. And um, yeah, that was the next phase. Anyway, that was that was after. <laughs> That was the year after when we knew it was just going to be books. Yeah, of course. The thing was that I've I've always found quite fascinating was that back in March two thousand and one, when the Stones of Venice was released, and it, it mentioned that you had been in that queue outside HMV in Princess Street in Edinburgh, and I had <laughs> been in that queue in Princess Street in Edinburgh outside HMV waiting for that midnight opening. And it's funny how we've been in touch for twenty one years but this is the first time we've properly spoken. I mean, what do you remember about that? I remember it being quite a warm about night. our first conversation, Kenny? Or? <laughs> oh, that, um, that, that, I just remember queuing up. There was such a good atmosphere, wasn't there, outside the shop? Just that buzz of all yeah. the fans. I mean, I, I lived very close. I lived on, um, I lived in Thistle Street, just off jo- uh, George Street. So mm-hmm. I was really close to HMV. It was HMV, wasn't it? Was it was, it? yeah. And my a friend of mine was the the manager, so I knew it was going to be open till you know at midnight or whatever with um, dump bins and displays. <laughs> dump bins and displays is it could be the title for this. Thing. And there was a queue, and I couldn't believe it. I thought I'd be the only one. And so you know, while surrounded by all these people, I didn't know anybody, and because I'd never really interacted with fandom. It's one of the things that me and Steve Cole had in common, actually, when we got to know each other the next year. He hadn't really been involved in fandom either, and yet most people who were doing the kind of books and, and the rest of it were. You know, they were really stitched into that that kind of world. They knew, knew everybody, but I didn't know anybody, and I felt very left out. And all I heard were all the um, hordes of gay men um, shrieking and being really <laughs> excited, and I felt re- and then all rushing off for um, uh, viewing parties. So I felt extremely left out. But I, you know, focused on <laughs> getting my getting my video because it was more than a ninety-minute video. It felt like it should be some kind of magical gateway into the future, and and of course that was inevitably disappointing. You get home and you have a little, you know, we had a tiny portable TV in our little flat, and um, it was still magical. But you know, like any first story for any doctor, it it's an excuse to get to the last two minutes where they set off. And have yeah. adventures, and you know there was no episode two. <laughs> no, sadly, but, but, no. the queue and the excitement, and you know paying your twelve pounds ninety nine, which you know you'd expect to get about six months streaming service on, you know, <laughs> for that now. <laughs> um, there was a lot, a lot resting on that. But I suppose if I'd gone off to a, some kind of viewing party with hordes of shrieking fans, I would have been really annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Most of that shrieking came from Darren Scott, who's now the editor of SFX. So, uh, oh, really? Because uh, we were in the we were in the Edinburgh Doctor Who group, and that's a real shame. We, we, we were met up every Monday night in a pub, oh, and yeah. it was What's down that? in, oh my goodness, what was it called? It was down, going to what was the Southleath Walk, about halfway down. And its name has completely escaped me, and it's closed now. But it was run by a lovely couple of gay men, and... Uh, I used to live in the next year. I lived there halfway down Leith Walk. Yeah. It'll come to me if I don't think about it. 
Um, but yeah, every Monday night we were there. And just oh, we had a great time. We had a wonderful time. I'm so sorry you weren't there. You've had you've had a great laugh with all of us. <laughs> we were a good bunch. So I suppose um, Scarlet Empress is. It must have been quite exciting when you, as you said earlier, you'd got those guidelines and then you finally put together your pitch and sent it off. And it must have been a real buzz when you got the reply. Well, yeah, the, I mean, there, there was a couple of things where, is it uh, Noala Buffini was in charge, first of all. And I think by then, it, it was 97. I think we got to 97 because through, you know, 96, nothing else had happened and, and it gone quiet. And But the books started to come out. And it was, you know, let's zoom through to... Um, Glasgow to get them because Edinburgh's not got them soon enough. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that you do that, you race off to go and fetch books from, and I suppose it was nostalgia for the, the early 80s, wasn't it? And being a kid and racing yep. to Smith's to get the new Doctor Who. Oh, yes. Well, well that's what we did. And, and I had this crash course in, in you know, the end of the, the new adventures and where they'd gone. So I was becoming more and more, you know, obsessed and driven to think I'm going to, um, I'm going to do this and do one. But, you know, it was in the middle of a new relationship and applying for academic jobs and, and uh, getting my the lectureship at UEA and publishing my first few books with Chattis. There was an, and then doing I was doing TV work, which kind of hit, well, it all fell apart, really, but that was going on at the same time. So there was an awful lot going on. But the thing, one of the overriding obsessions was, I really want to write Doctor Who. And in the summer 96, every other week, I spent a Wednesday at White City at the BBC with Jed Mercurio um, producing and writing Invasion Earth, this science fiction show. And the other writer, because he got, he was determined to get in two novelists, who he then sacked. <laughs> the whole production sacked the two novelists by the end of it. But we went through a few drafts and lots of meetings, was um, Stephen Baxter. So the whole of the summer of 96, when we were getting so excited about Doctor Who and the possibilities, I was in a, a room at the BBC with Jed Mercurio and Stephen Baxter talking about how you would invade the Earth <laughs> as an n-dimensional being. <laughs> and, we, and we'd have lunch together, and we'd have these whole day-long meetings about, about invading Earth. And Jed's saying things like, well, it can't be camp like old-fashioned Doctor Who and unit stories. The one thing it can't be is that. And there was me and Stephen Baxter just about crying because the one thing we wanted to make it like. And he said, no, all that kind of stuff is dead. You'll never see Doctor Who defending the Earth with unit against alien invasions ever again. And so we were really upset. Of course, we did. We got to see it, but we didn't get to write it. We yeah. did write drafts of Invasion Earth, but then in the end, it, it all you know, changed. And it, was, it was Jed's show. But that was very funny. That, you know, so part of, part of my 96 and thinking, I'm obsessed with Doctor Who again, I want to write this, was yeah. sitting with those luminaries in a stuffy office all through the summer of 96. Um, and first of all, and I went down to, to White City to meet Steve Cole when um, he took over editorial stuff on Doctor Who. And first of all, he um, he was doing short stories. So my tryout was a, a, was Old Flames. And that was the first time I brought Iris into Doctor Who and Fourth Doctor and Sarah. And then it was read by Nicholas Courtney, which always makes Katie Manning laugh knowing or being told you know actually wasn't the first person to play iris nick courtney was which is very funny but then then you know almost immediately it was like here's my synopsis for a uh, a full-length novel and because i was obsessed that summer with the arabian nights and all those kind of compendious kind of fairy tale books 
where one story leads into another and stuff about the history of storytelling. That's what it became about, um, something that would put back the kind of joy of storytelling and a bit of magical realism into Doctor Who. Because, you know, I was certain that, that Doctor Who shouldn't just be about monsters and guns and planets. It should be about other stuff as well. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I mentioned beforehand that I think when reading Scarlet Empress and with no disrespect to any of the previous authors, this one absolutely felt different when reading it. You just think it's just larger than life and you can feel a sense of who the author is. It just leapt off the page. It really came alive and just larger than life characters and settings that you just wouldn't normally associate with Doctor Who. And it just, it felt just so alive. And I think I remember you once saying that Russell T. Davis had said that you should always let your own voice be heard when you're writing, because otherwise, what's the point? Something along those lines, if you don't mind me paraphrasing. Said it as he sacked me. <laughs> <laughs> that was said as he, the, the, the 1995 soap that I, that I was on. <laughs> it was one of the things he said afterwards that, that you know, the writers divide into two sets. There's people who can tell the line, do as they're told, subsume a writerly voice to the kind of overriding main voice in the project or not have a voice at all, just fit in. And then there's those who, who, who never fit in, who do their own thing and always stand out and their own voice is ineradicable. So it was, you know, it was a great compliment coming um, from him whose own voice is unmistakable. And, and I'm, you know, I'm glad to have one that is. I mean, he, he read everything and wrote to me when the Scarlet Empress came out and, you know, and said, things very like what you're saying about it being unlike anything that had you know happened until until then and, and how pleased that it was you know a, a real novel yeah. which is what that's that's lovely that's exactly what i wanted yeah because it seems like there's there's just so there's so many ideas in there and it just works many we got carried away <laughs> i mean it, I, I i think you have to write these things as if it's the one and only chance you get and so, so that one really is compendious. I thought, well, I'll never do this again. It's just my gift to myself and I'll pack everything in there. But, you know, never thinking you're going to have 25 years of, you know, <laughs> of doing Doctor Who stuff almost every year alongside what you do. I still think I, I pack in too much. And, and I'm sure people feel that when they read it, that it's like opening a cupboard and having the entire contents drop on them. But that's, that's all right. I'd rather, I've read too many things where there's too few ideas. And I've watched too many episodes of Doctor Who where there's too few ideas stretched thinly, like margarine on stale bread. There's too much of that stuff in the world. Generally. I'd rather, I'd rather, you know, hit somebody with a massive cake. That's, I <laughs> love it. Um, straight away, Iris just absolutely grabs hold of you as you just think, who in the earth is this woman? And you want to know more about her, as you said. We'd met her briefly meeting the fourth Doctor and Sarah Jane in Old Flames. And then all of a sudden here we've got this force of nature and there's just so many hilarious things in there like her being summoned to the death zone with Morbius and bit by bit the Doctor sort of, that never happened. And then it was like, oh yeah, it did, didn't it? And it's, I think it's, it's really nice to sort of these touches and it's just taking everything that Doctor is and Iris is almost in many ways the anti-Doctor. Well, he might be the Time Lord She's just absolutely time working class and just doesn't care. Well, just goes on. I mean, that, that's it. I look back on things I've done and think a lot of the time what I'm doing, if you had to draw a line of continuity through the things I've done, 
in different genres. It's putting working class women into the centre of genres where maybe they weren't. And and so her experience is is in Doctor Who. She's she, she's working class Gallifrey. And what does that mean? What would that look like? Um, that that's what I was imagining. Yeah, and I've done it in in things like the Brenda and Effie books, where you know a, a gothic horror or cozy mystery. It's about a very kind of working class woman's voice in the, in, in the middle of it. And that, that must, and, and magical realism as well, literary magical realism. I wrote about council estates and the women on council estates for a very literary audience amongst people who, who would then say, you know, oh, aren't these the people from soap operas on TV and not novels? And you're just, you know, that, with a, which is great. That kind of prejudice makes you think, yeah, this is why it's worth doing this stuff. And the way people reacted to Iris was, was similar in a way, you know, why, why <laughs> who is this person? Why is she in our, our our favorite series? And I think that's funny. Yeah, I think it just made such an impression the fact that you've got you've got the buffs. I mean, it just it just felt right. And I remember laughing so much the first time that you know, and, and even rereading and the jokes are all there and it's brilliant. And, and the thing that I really like is the fact that um, obviously we've got the events taking place on Hispero. And lo and behold, the name pops up. It's nice to hear it being getting a wee mention when you wrote The Stones of Venice. I suppose, yeah, I'm, I'm driven to to link up all the things that I do, <laughs> which is, um, it's almost like, well, I'm taking it seriously. <laughs> I think um, the stuff I do exists in the same world and, 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 and stitching them together somehow. Mm-hmm. That seems important to me somehow that they that they're stepping stones from from one to the next. I mean, I do it for other people, other people's work as well. That there's mentions of you know, I, I definitely pay tribute to other people's inventions and, and stories. And I remember in the Scarlet Empress, there's there's bits of Mark Morris's Zygon book. I didn't know Mark as well before I knew him, but I enjoyed his book. And and you know, there's bits of Cat's Cradle, you know, the the the, the new yeah. new adventure thing. As well as all the, I mean, it, it, it's absolutely chock-a-block with continuity references, but people don't notice them so much, I suppose, as they do in other, other people's books. But those, yeah, there's nicked tropes and images from other people's yeah. to, to, to make us feel that it's all same, it's all part of the same patchwork quilt of storytelling. And, you know, I don't like the, the kind of, the chronologies that people write, this happens after this, after this, and they all fit in together. I think it is much more of a, a patchwork quilt where the progress you make as a storyteller and as a reader or viewer is kind of zigzaggy and, and, and goes all over the place. And that to me puts Doctor Who in the same camp as things like the old kind of fairy tale cycles, as the old myth cycles, which I think is what it, what it you know, without being too pretentious, it is what it kind of is. It's a great machine for um, telling fantasy stories. How did you find writing for the Doctor and Sam dynamic? Uh, well, you're, I mean, like any of these things, you are given the uh, the leads and you have to, you just got to take them on. And, and I was happy because they were new, so they were relatively kind of fresh and old fashioned. You know, it, it was it was middle aged Doctor and, and young companion. And uh, that always that always works. There was the she had a bit of backstory by the time that I got to the character, and of course they did the classic '90s thing of she's got a dark past, or she's it gets darker, and then they make her grow up, and it's like oh, I'd rather they kept things kind of a bit more sweet than that, and a bit more yeah sweeter, I guess, and 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 less less angsty. 
everybody had to tend towards the the um, the angsty. But that that was the the nineties, I guess. Yeah, I enjoyed. I mean, I really enjoyed writing that kind of Tigger the Tigerish Eighth Doctor, who was wordy and enthusiastic, and everything was new to him. That was a big part of those books that the the universe was somehow new to him, and he was the opposite of the you know the the, the Seventh Doctor in the books, which was been everywhere that morning <laughs> and, and stitched up all of his future adventures and put things in place and the manipulator and all of that which was you know radical at the time back in the late 80s on tv and then in the early books <clears throat> that was amazing that you, know, you have this idea of him as, as being kind of an anti-hero but the idea of turning that back again and here you've got this kind of cartoon version of early tom baker blended with you know John Pertwee, that 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 for me was the essence of the McCann thing—a kind of sexy version of of them at yeah. their most enthusiastic. A kind of—he was almost like a greatest hits Doctor Who, and that was a way of relaunching it. And I thought that's how you play it, but give him something new to do, put him in something more sophisticated, which which is what I tried to do. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think it, it kind of, and I think that's the way to do Doctor Who in lots of ways, to in any era, to make the Doctor a kind of a blank canvas, with with very distinctive traits, so we know who he is and how he'll react. But it's not about his angst. <laughs> Put him in, a, you know, have a simple Doctor in a complicated universe, rather than an angsty, complicated Doctor in a very simple universe, and 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 because that that doesn't work for me. I don't yeah. like the Doctor navel-gazing. Because then when you had Sylvester McCoy's Doctor navel-gazing, you found out he didn't have a navel. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes, a good old snail. Yes. Good old looms and such legs. Never a bit that. of gallifrey looms. How do you look back on it now? Because obviously it's a story that in many ways changed your life. <laughs> I don't know, well, uh, yes. I mean, <clears throat> I, I was by the time it came out, Ninety-eight. I was at UEA and I had my own office and I had a computer, a shonky old thing that barely worked that you'd have to hit, but it would get onto the internet. And I remember becoming aware of fan forums for the first time. And, and you know, this was a time when people read the books to get the next bit of Doctor Who and they would argue the toss about it and, and get very excited and very annoyed. So I became aware of this, you know, raging debates as soon as the book came out and I was delighted. Uh, to find this very kind of literate audience that was writing screeds of stuff for and against. But, you know, you think, God, they do this every month about these books. Then you look back and no, they didn't do this every month about these books. A lot of these things were just, you know, fired over the wall and disappeared. But um, I was really pleased to be taken notice of, I suppose. And I look back on it as being a book I would still, um, maybe not read again, but I would dip into um, it's it's a place I've you know the planet that I've done I, I've kind of revisited in, in in various things so it it obviously has some charm for me still um, and I think I'm still kind of writing it in some ways I'm still trying to perfect it yeah I'd say that's true I still haven't quite done it. I keep thinking um, I've done a nice Doctor Who thing but then I'm always thinking well there's still something else I'd like to do but yeah I'm I'm, I'm proud to do something to have done something that that people remember. If they do. I think they do. I think so. It's absolutely the first time I saw the title announced, I misread it as the Scarlet Express and thought, that'd be an interesting oh. train. But and then obviously I looked back and thought, 
that was an empress when they saw the cover and said, that doesn't make sense, it's not a train. Mm. So yes, <laughs> but that's just me reading bad or misreading. Yeah. But oh, Paul, it's been a joy. Thank you so much for joining us in Pieces of Eight. Uh, thank you for, uh, for asking me. It's been nice. Thanks to Paul for taking the time to have a chat with us about his work on this one, which was just an absolute joy. And, um, and also my admission that I misread the book title the first time that I saw it was announced, I misread it as being The Scarlet Express. And then I did wonder why there was an eye in the front and not a train. And then, oh. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Easily done, though. It is. Especially after we were talking about the Flying Dutchman yesterday. But before we hear from our third guest, do you think we have time for another extract from the book? This time near the end, when the Doctor goes to rescue Sam and her friends from the clutches of the Scarlet Empress? Absolutely. Let's do it. All around the bus, the vortex howled and churned. Iris was sitting bolt upright. That curious radiance had dropped away from her like a shroud. She looked like death. She said two words, help me and fell down again onto the faded and nervous-stuffed chintz. Get her a drink, the doctor cried and headed back to the controls. We really haven't much time. What's happening to her? She's at a critical stage, he yelled, and so are we. The controls fizzed and shook. We're about to arrive. The liquids and pink mucus in the jar had turned a poisonous red. Over her primitive loudspeakers, the Empress was screaming, Kill them! Kill these worshippers philandering fools! The throne room erupted as guards appeared from nowhere and dragged Gyla, Angela and Sam up onto a raised day to one side of the room that already, they discovered, had heavy chopping blocks prepared for them. There was nothing they could do, though Gyla fought with every scrap of strength he had left. They were overpowered and hauled up the steps of scarlet stone, and their throats were placed on the old, cold wood of the blocks. Scimitars were briskly wetted with a swift, shutting noise. Kill them now, whispered the Scarlet Empress pressing her gnarled fingers up against the glass, pushing as close as she could in order to see every detail of the massacre. Sam briefly considered screaming. Then, between the shopping blocks and the Empress's tall glass jar, the air started to buckle and tremble and then to solidify. A tremendous wheezing, groaning sound rent the air. A breeze plucked up out of nowhere, and the scimitars were lowered in puzzlement and dismay. The Empress put her hands to her ears and howled out her pain and rage, and Sam's heart jumped into her mouth as in the middle of the bloody marble floor a red double-decker bus quickly made itself apparent. The guards scattered, the Empress screamed, Too noisy! Too loud! The spindly arms inside the glass flailed and wheeled as she was consumed in agony. The confused guards ran to help her, appalled by her pain. Sam and the others found themselves intact and unguarded. It's him! Sam yelled. It's them! They've come for us! They survived! Oh, so good. This book is so recommended. If you don't have it, please do go and try and track it down because it'll be a good three, four hours that you will definitely, definitely enjoy. Remembering, remembering, remembering the recording for this at mm. the moment. And when we started recording this episode, I was going... Iris Wildtime with a TARDIS that looks like a bus. I'm sure I know her. And then I realised <laughs> it was because I've read this for you. <laughs> yeah, now the penny has dropped. <laughs> yes, terrible. I'm so sorry. But it is time to meet our final guest. We are delighted to welcome back artist Colin Howard, who painted the Empress's Eye for the cover. And it is such a beautiful piece of work. 
Hi there, my name's Colin Howard, and um, I was sort of the cover artist on the Scarlet Empress for the BBC 8 Doctor books. Okay, that's an interesting one. You were sort of the artist. Okay, well, you need to explain this one, Colin. <laughs> it was getting a little bit surreal um, back then with the Scarlet Empress. It was a case of the art director wanting a very distorted but glamorous Empress character in this sort of glass jar, almost genie-like. I think, was it Paul Mars? That's um, right. That? Oh, I love his work. Um, really, really big fan of, of a lot of his stuff. And um, yeah, it was a case of trying to get something down and to try and still be in that kind of glamorous look, but to distort it to the nth degree. So I think in the end, um, part of my work was used um, and then distorted digitally. It wasn't the actual piece that I did. And um, it's an odd one because I don't think I ever got the artwork back. So it's trying to remember back to that sort of strange time and um, remember precisely what it is that I provided for it. But yeah, it was like an Empress figure sort of getting, uh, trying to get out of this uh, jar. Um, but I think in the end, it was just part of the finger and that was used with an eye sort of distorted in the glass. I suppose when you get a book title like that, when you've got a colour mentioned, that's such a vivid colour. That's, mm. prob that's probably, uh, here we go, the artist's delighted the fact that it gives you it gives you a colour palette straight away. Yeah, it's a very uh, sort of precise um, direction to uh, to run with, uh, which was lovely. But um, yeah, it's it's a very strange one because I have really vague memories of um, of working on that one. So uh, I think I must have been bewitched by uh, something. <laughs> Fantastic, Colin. That's perfect. Thank you so much. That's okay, mate. No problem at all. Well, as you can gather, I love this book. And we're going to have one final reading from near the end, which was written in the first person, so we get to see events from the Doctor's point of view, as he and Sam are in the TARDIS. Something lights up on the console. At first, I can't remember what that particular signal means, and then I do. What's up? asks Sam. Someone is sending us a message. Maybe a distress beacon, maybe a warning. Something. In my life, this is exactly the way new episodes always begin. And gladly, I flick the switch. Sam gives me an ironic grin. Is this Sam and the Doctor on their way to their next exciting adventure? Maybe, I say, trying to shrug off my mood and remorse. Some kind of message is definitely coming in. Something visual, apparently. Scanner, I say, and elect for the wider view. I throw the switch that activates the overarching ceiling scanner. It opens gloriously and displays the vortex at its giddying intensity, yawning and widening over our heads. I love that. The scanner flickers and jumbles, and then eventually we get the visuals. Someone is transmitting us live pictures from some souped-up video camera. Sam squawks, it's Iris's bus! And indeed it is, in widescreen, in full Technicolor, the lower deck of Iris's old bike. She is delivering us a home movie. And there she is. She's in the vortex herself. For some reason, she's an anti-grav. She spins and revolves in mid-air alongside a scattering of floating teacups and novels and journals, cushions and teaspoons and parchment maps. The old woman is glowing and spinning in the viscid-looking air. Then her features blur. She's changing, slowing off her old self. 
she peels off her cardigans, kicks off her sensible shoes, and they drift away from her. She flings off her hat. Her thick, aged flesh drops away. Her grey, wiry hair shakes out, fanning around her. And it turns as if ripening into honey blonde. We blink. Iris is suddenly young, still revolving on the air. She's wearing a silver, partly transparent bikini. She's young and laughing. She's regenerating, I tell Sam. Sam is grinning. She said she would. She bangs the console with a whoop. She sent us a video of her regeneration like she would a wedding video. Fantastic! Sam and I stare at the changed Iris. Massive and glorious, she looms above our heads. And then she winks at us broadly, renewed. She made it, Sam says. Bless her hearts, I reply. Just as the picture breaks up, we are returned once more to the happily infinite vortex. So there we go. Iris regenerated. Proper regeneration sound in there. Just like Barbarella. What a film that is. Jane Fonda. Mm, I better stop rubbing my thigh. <laughs> yes. I genuinely thought you would say something different compared to rubbing my thigh. No, just don't. <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> don't stop it. Remember, if you've enjoyed this episode of Pieces of Eighth or indeed liked any other episode we've done, please do leave a review for us on iTunes or your podcast host as it means more people can find our episodes. Go on, yeah, you want to. <laughs> and we'll be back tomorrow with another episode. It's the Janus Conjunction, the first novel from Trevor Baxendale, who's gone on to write a number of Doctor Who and Blake Seven audios and books. So until then, I've been Kenny Smith. And I was Rebecca Chapman. Okay, we've said goodbye, so let's board the Scarlet Express, that train that I've made up, and head off into the sunset for another day. Choo choo! <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye.